gonna skate to one song, one song only. No challenges remaining. Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg. Delighted to be joined yet again during this coronavirus hiatus from the tour by NCR's Middle East correspondent, Reem Abulail. Reem, thanks for being back on the show once again. Thanks for having me. I like this. We're spending a lot of time together. <laughs> it's honestly, it's been one of the nice things about life in core is like spending a lot, weirdly, like a lot more time with friends. I think overall, if I had to add up the time, it's more time I spend like talking even seeing, if you count Zoom as seeing friends, and, you know, even though there's no in-person contact, and I miss that, and I miss all the normal things. Like, there have been, that side of it's been been nice, I will say. Yeah, same here. Tennis was affected, as we discussed on our last show we did, and which you were also on, was when we did a show, Us Two and Tumani Carriol, about sort of breaking news reaction to when Grigor Dimitrov tested positive for the coronavirus after playing the Adria tour. And that was on, I believe, 10 days ago from when we were recording this. It was on a Sunday. That next Monday, we found out that other players, Borna Chorich, Victor Troitsky, had also tested positive. A day after that, we found out that Novak Djokovic, who had spearheaded the tour, it was his baby. He was the face of it. He had also tested positive along with his wife, Yelena. And then a few days after that, Goran Ivanisevic who was the director of the Zadar leg of the tour in Croatia, the second stop out of what I think was going to be five originally on the Adria tour, had also tested positive after previously testing negative twice in his first two tests. So let's start there, Reem, to sort of be the the epilogue to our last episode. What did your reaction to Adria tour change at all between the Dimitrov positive test, which I think we knew could be the first of many, and seeing these other big players, including world number one Novak Djokovic, also test positive. And I will, before I throw it to you, I will also add, we have no idea how many other people, fans, staff, organizers, media, whoever, hotel workers, whoever, at the around the Adria tour also tested positive. So what, what were your thoughts for the further fallout of it? I think as soon as I heard about Borna Chorich, which was the second test that we found out about, and we also heard about... Grigor's coach and Novak's physio. Those were like the Mm -hmm. first four. I figured it's not surprising if almost everybody else got it because there was just so much close contact between them the whole time. They played doubles together. They partied together. They did so. So like, it's, it's not surprising. So by the time, yeah, like after, after the second wave of tests, I felt like I expected that pretty much everyone would test positive. So actually I was more surprised at the negative tests than the positive ones. But I think the the biggest thing that stands out, obviously, for me in terms of the different thing is that Goran tested negative twice and then tested positive. So that kind of gave us more. Obviously, we know that that can happen. But the fact that everyone who was kind of defending the tour, everyone who is being, I don't know, everyone who thinks that, oh, if I'm negative, I can go play another tournament. Someone like Team owns and played another tournament, all that stuff. That kind of with Goran testing positive. I guess it was a, a kind of a cautionary tale for everybody else. Guys, really, if you need to isolate because look what happened with Goran. I think, I think it is a really useful real-world example, honestly, that we know about this incubation time, we know theoretically, but hearing someone like Goran, who'd been a little bit strident to the beginning, he was the one who was announcing it on court in Zadar when the tournament was stopping there, or when the event was stopping, I don't know if you really should call it tournament. When the event was stopping there, saying, hey, don't blame me, I don't have coronavirus. It's not, you know, I didn't do it essentially, was what he sort of said somewhat in jest on court uh, when he was sitting at the Georgie Djokovic 
that's the cancellation and to see him yeah test positive eventually does show like yes we know it intellectually but seeing a real world example of someone having that delayed time yeah it does does make you realize hey you guys really have to that's why we're doing the 14 days staying inside why people are doing that when they possibly get exposed or other things to make sure they don't have it incubating and yeah that gets to Dominic team. Let's start with him. I think there's a little less to say about team. The team comes up from Adriator and goes to play the UTS, which is the ultimate tennis showdown event helping held at the Mortaglu Academy in France. And he gets tested upon arriving there. I think he gets tested multiple times there from what he was saying. And he makes a joke that he's during one of the interviews that he's the most negative guy on tour, which some people thought was in poor taste. I honestly didn't have that much of a problem with it. I sort of understood it. If you've been, you know, had blood drawn six times in a week i feel like you're allowed to make a joke about it but at the same time i don't know why he's playing and i wish he was not playing i just don't think it's worth the risk for dominic team to be playing tennis if i was holding a tennis event that had previously booked dominic team i would say sorry but we're going to cancel your appearance at this tournament we don't want anyone who's been clearly exposed to this in this you know orgiastic coronavirus cauldron that was adriator to come here i think that just testing negative within the window is not enough to show that you're not possibly carrying and or contagious we we've done that and now seeing team go from the uh, uts to pull out of that to now go to various other events i think he's scheduled to play in austria next and then he's going to go play in germany after that I, it just seems like he's just trying his, he's really working overtime trying to be patient zero as many places as possible i just i just think it's it's pretty indefensible just sit it out you don't need to be playing exos I definitely think he shouldn't be playing back-to-back weeks. I just think after the Adrian Tour, definitely he needed to give himself a window. If the 14 days had passed, then he, he then it's fine. He can go play whatever. But uh, it was it was strange, and especially, thankfully, he hasn't tested positive. So far, he's not sick, which is good news for him and everyone around him. However, it could have been different. He could have been like Goran. So... It, it it's not worth the risk. I want, I really, yeah. for someone who's already played a lot of tennis, Dominic has played already several events. Why is it worth the risk? I really don't know. I don't understand it. Maybe I'm not a player, so maybe I think differently, but I don't think this should matter how you think because we're all thinking about this. It should be the same thing. Everyone's yeah. health, right? So I don't get it. I honestly don't get it. Uncharitably, all I can chalk it up to is greed. Honestly, that you just want to keep getting paid for playing each additional tournament. And what other motivation is there in playing no ranking point tournaments back to back to back as many as you possibly can? So I just see it as greed, honestly. He's been top it's... 10 for literally at least five years. At oh, least I know he years. has the money. So I don't understand someone. So that maybe that's why maybe it's not about the money. I, I don't know. I my, my yeah. thought with, with Dominic, because obviously Dominic was an overscheduler for a long time as a player also. Yeah. And when asking people, you know, who sort of know him, they chalked it up to him wanting money and not being, and just being not able to turn down appearance checks. So, you know, that's normally his prerogative as a, as a independent contractor in tennis to play as much as he wants and put his health at risk and his durability at risk to go take those checks. But now when he's possibly again, a contagion, well, he's not personally contagion, but he's possibly carrying contagions. He might as well be a contagion at this point. Yeah. It's just not worth it. And then we got the the moment that I think pissed people off. It, we're get, we're, okay, I will phrase, I will step back for one second here as we sort of catalog these things. We're going to get to the idea of player responsibility in the bigger picture later on, but we're just sort of catching up people on, on the events of the last week or so. Then on Sunday, we get the video, that, which someone shared with me and I 
shared with Twitter of Sasha Zverev, who was one of the players who tested negative, who said he tested negative at Adria Tour, partying, video of him on Sunday, partying at some seaside club in Monte Carlo and having a grand old time with a bunch of friends and scantily clad women and whatever else, completely oblivious to the fact that he's only six days removed from his exposure to the uh, coronavirus. And after he had said in his statement, let me just read his statement briefly, let me pull this up. This was a statement from Monday, I believe. He said, I just received the news that my team and I have tested negative for COVID-19. I deeply apologize to anyone that I potentially put at risk by playing this tour. I will proceed to follow the self-isolating guidelines advised by our doctors as an added precaution. My team and I will continue with regular testing. So, Reem, what, I mean, obviously there's a lot of loud reaction on social media to the Zverev party scene. But what was, what was your personal reaction when, whenever you first saw it? It's, it's just completely unacceptable. For me, this is unacceptable on every level. As someone, first of all, who should be held accountable for everything he's doing, especially that he is famous and a superstar athlete and has all these eyes on him, he should be an example, okay? If he's not trying to be an example, he's actually being, right now he's being an example of what not to do. And I don't think that's where he wants to be. And the fact that he, it's kind of what Nikirio said, to be honest, when he's like, if you're going to have your management draw up that statement, read it, know what's in it, and do what, what, what it said. And the fact that six days later, he's partying of all, like, of all things, you're partying in a packed beach club. Like, can you not survive for 14 days without partying? I, I don't get it. I honestly don't get it. It doesn't surprise me because he, but at the end of the day, it's just, unacceptable it's disappointing and unacceptable and actually infuriating as well i completely agree unacceptable infuriating i think i was listening to the tennis podcast Catherine whitaker said it made her blood boil which i don't disagree with uh actually let's play that clip of of nick curious uh who was somewhat ironically preaching about social responsibility while driving his car and making a video of himself but here is nick curious sounding off on alexander zverev so i wake up and i see i see more more controversial things happening all over the world um, but one that stuck out for me was, was seeing Sasha Zverev again, man, again, again. How selfish can you be? How selfish can you be? I mean, if you have the audacity to fucking put out a tweet that you made your management right on your behalf, saying you're going to self-isolate for 14 days and apologizing to fucking general public and putting their health at risk, at least have the audacity to stay inside. For 14 days, my God. Have your girlfriend with you for fucking 14 days. Jesus, man, pissing me off. This tennis world's pissing me off, seriously. How selfish can you all get? Yeah, no, that's that's my complete thought too. And it's just like the low state. It's one thing if you sneak out of your quarantine to go get groceries or something, or to do something that's like an essential. That even you shouldn't, you should be finding ways not to do. It's completely inessential beach party scene. May, I think raised a lot of questions right away about if tennis players can be trusted if they can be trusted to do things that are in the greater interest or if they're just going to be selfish all the time. And that, had, that, that brings up questions that had lingered from the announcement of the U.S. Open coming back. This is a question that I asked Stacey Allister in the press conference. And actually, maybe I can, I'll see if, if I can. I'm going to put in a clip here of me asking question, this question to Stacey Allister at the press conference, which is basically just about how closely staying within the bubble at the U.S. Open would be enforced knowing that any breach of it could really compromise the sec health security of U.S. Open participants. To the third question, that will be from Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times. Just think it's how strictly the sort of 
bubble is going to be enforced. If players, what happens if a player sneaks out of the hotel to go clubbing? What happens if they try to, you know, invite someone they met on a dating app over to the hotel or something? How, how strict of a, of a confines is this going to be? And, and will players have to sort of adhere by different behavior rules in order to stay eligible to, to be at the U.S. Open? I'm going to go to Stacy to start with this, but then uh, Dr. Hainline, I wonder if you could just talk about uh, this as well. But Stacy, why don't you begin and then we'll go to Dr. Hainline. Thanks, Chris. Hey, Ben. Uh, we've created this plan, this centralized plan, so that our athletes can come back and return to work. Um, I think as we are all returning to work, we all uh, have a responsibility to ourselves, to our families. Uh, to our fellow co-workers. Um, I have a lot of confidence uh, in, the, in these professional athletes, together with the tours. Uh, we will be working with them uh, to uh, be comfortable. Uh, we want them to stay uh, in the hotels and to then also uh, come here to the USTA Billie Jean King National Tennis Center. And uh, it'll be on all of us to do our part uh, to be able to stage this event uh, in the safest and healthiest way. And, and again, I'm very confident that the athletes who do decide to join us will share in that responsibility. And Dr. Hainline, do you have any thoughts on this? Right, so I, I, I won't answer the part of the question about enforcement because I'm not on the enforcement side. Uh, but if you think about it, we really designed this tournament around a bubble. And uh, if someone becomes infected, so that's a possibility. If they go out and, 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 and they put themselves in, at a situation where their behavior is risky, if they become infected, they're really taking on a responsibility of saying, well, you know, what I'm doing is not that important to my fellow players. But if, if they do become infected, the way the inner bubble is, they will not be physically in contact with any of the other players. Everything is set up. We're going to be doing the regular testing. So even if someone does test positive during the tournament, we're confident that that disease won't spread to the other players because of how everything has been worked out and modeled. Reem, similarly, you reached out to the tours about code of conduct ideas. And can you just talk about why you thought this was a story worth pursuing and, and what sort of reaction you got from them? So basically, the, uh, the column I wrote this week for the National was kind of about how Sasha's behavior kind of affects the tournaments moving forward and how they, they deal with players who break the rules, which, which was your question to Stacey. And she, it kind of the answer from the US Open was like, we're, we're taking a leap of faith here. We trust the players to do the right thing. And then obviously you can't because yeah. of what Sasha did. So, we trust the players to be professional is basically her answer. Exactly. Yeah. And my column was basically looking into it. Would it be possible for the tours to kind of update their code of conduct and, and implement some sort of fines or punishments or something so that if players are going to break the seal of that bubble, uh, that they would be held accountable for. It. And, uh, yeah. So I reached out to the tours because obviously the tours plan on resuming in August. And there's going to be Washington and there's going to be Madrid and Rome. And so like outside the slams, there's going to be tournaments. And I got different responses. I got a response from the WTA basically saying that they feel that a fine would be meaningless because the threat of getting COVID should be much bigger than the threat of a fine. Yeah. Can I read from that statement briefly? Yeah, I have yeah it up here. sure. So the key sort of line, which you just referred to there in the statement you got from WTA was saying success of 
the safety protocols basically will depend on whether our players, player support teams, tournaments, and respective staffs follow these protocols. If they are not followed, financial fines will mean little or nothing given the consequences of a player or other person in the WTA community testing positive for COVID-19. If the protocols are not followed and the risk becomes too great, the tour may not have any choice but to shut down. For the good of the game and the tour, everyone must follow the rules. Which basically, I think, is similar to the US Open response and being very trusting and I would say naive that everyone's going to understand the stakes and act really smart. And I just think that across the world right now, you're not seeing that. You're not seeing universally great behavior from people in countries that are doing well, like even like Serbia, honestly, which is a country that they were bragging about their stats and how well they were doing reducing the virus. And also places that have never been doing particularly well like the US and like Florida and Texas and Arizona and all these states are continuing to have flare-ups. Even California, which was doing well, is no longer doing well because people's not best efforts are not enough. You know, if you're kind of half-assing this and saying, okay, well, I'm going to go out and meet just a few friends and have drinks at an outdoor patio bar with no mask or something, that could still be bad enough. Mm. Like the, the standard is very high for what it takes to be stopping this. And <laughs> as I wrote on Twitter, like America's worst efforts are not close to being enough. We, and so, yeah, so I, I see similar naivete in the WTA response, honestly. And then you got a, a somewhat different response from ATP, if you want to characterize that before I can read it. Or I can just yeah. read it, whatever, whatever you Yeah, say. I mean, you could read it, but the, they're, they're just keeping the window open, basically. And they're saying they're going to review the code of conduct. Yeah. ATP says, circumstances arising from COVID-19 require multiple updates to ATP rules. As part of this process, the code of conduct is also being re- reviewed. And then they say they will update us on any changes that happen. Mm-hmm. I, I just think this is a big weak point for tennis generally. I think this is one of those things that tennis can take this opportunity to reset. I think player accountability is a huge lacking thing in tennis. There are so many loopholes in tennis. It's unbelievable. And so many things that are just like not policed. Like, you know, like when Fabio Fanini gets ejected from the U.S. Open, right, mm-hmm. for, for, his, for his misogynistic comments towards the chair empire, uh, which were awful and deserved to get defaulted from that tournament as he was, it's then bizarre to people when he's then permitted to go play. I don't know if he did or not, but if, let's say he went and played St. Petersburg ATP event like the next week mm-hmm. because they're on different tours and a lack of jurisdiction and all these things. Like when Nick Kyrgios does something bad in Cincinnati and then can still play in the U.S. Open, these different sorts of things, it's like there's so many cracks in, this, in, the, whole, in the wall that it's not really a house that can stand up to much of a storm and COVID is a huge storm. Right. And even things that happened this week, alternately, like the, the tweets from Peter Polanski, like mocking the tweet that Dylan Alcott, who's the super mm-hmm. champion quad wheelchair player, had made talking about how it was rough that the U.S. Open had initially canceled wheelchair tennis. They've since reversed that. But his sort of frustration at that and feeling discriminated against from that decision, which I think was totally valid. Peter does this really obnoxious post, like sort of copying the template of Dylan's tweet and making it about himself and qualities or whatever. And that's the kind of thing that in any organization that had it shit together <laughs> would get him suspended. But in, in, there's no one who's like sort of at all watching this from a sort of code of conduct from the tours. The tours would say that there wasn't a responsibility. The slams aren't going to, are probably going to step up and do anything. And it's just, ugh, yeah, it's just like, there's no, there's no accountability in tennis. And it's really, I think I think this uh, the fact that there isn't something and, and they don't they aren't taking this point to try. I don't know. That's my first thought is that it's it's frustrating. 
Maybe I went too wide there, but I think that it's no. I I I I downloaded obviously the the rule books to look at what the code of conduct says, and obviously it's quite it it covers some stuff. But I was wondering why. I think that it brings us back to how complicated tennis is, and all these different entities, and how like the tours are partnerships between the tournaments and players, but the players are independent contractors and. And I think it might narrow down to just the tours being incapable of putting these things from a legal standpoint. Yeah. When I looked at other sports and how they were dealing with their restarts, so obviously with football, um, the Premier League came back, and before that, the Bundesliga, the Ger- the German league came back, and stuff like that. Uh, I I was looking at examples of people who got fined for breaking rules, and yeah. like there were a couple of Dortmund players who had haircuts at home but weren't wearing masks while their barbers were there, and they got fined by the league itself, by the German league itself. And then there was a player earlier on during lockdown in the UK, an Aston Villa player who was uh, fined by his own team, by Aston Villa, for breaking like the government lockdown rules. So the the reason that can happen in football and it's not happening in tennis probably is because like in football the the teams own the players and then the the teams are registered under like in the league so yeah they they are able to do that and actually the fines were huge there's stuff like 200,000 pounds and stuff okay. like that yeah because they're like we know your paycheck how much you're making every week so we're fining you big time which kind of made me think of if tennis wants to implement fines cuz a lot of people i know i'm jumping a little bit ahead but it's just relevant to this point in that if you want a fine to mean something to a player i was kind of thinking it needs to kind of be a percentage of what he made this year you know it has to be like yeah. a rel- relative to that so if you're someone who made 4 million then whatever I guess I don't know 200,000 is a big enough fine that you can afford and you kind of deserve you know whereas someone who made that obviously I don't mean exactly that percentage but so I was looking at all these different examples and my conclusion is probably the reason tennis is not enforcing this kind of stuff at the moment with other kind of -of off-court behavior is because maybe they can't from a legal standpoint and maybe they should look at ways where they make should make it happen somehow right and it's one of those things in tennis i get frustrated when people who work for the tours say you know oh you don't understand the structure it's so complicated we can't do this i i think so often there's just sort of a a resignation to that when there is an imperative to get things done here and to step up and make rules here i don't think you can trust players certainly not atp players and we should point out wta said relatively few issues on this front the cases we're talking about the beginning were all atp centric cases of this so ATP, yeah, maybe they just, yeah, but even still WTA, it's still a hundred players plus their entourages, plus their hitting partners, plus their coaches, whoever else they might have with them in the bubble, trusting all of those men, even if we're thinking it's just a male problem. So plenty of men, you know, working in the WTA tour in and around it. Yeah. I, I, I just think there needs to be a way to step up and do that. And this is a benefit to tennis in some ways in this moment that, I mean, this is something we discussed in the US Open episode. This is one upside of not having a union is that everyone's an independent contractor and everyone gets to decide whether or not he or she is comfortable playing the U.S. Open in its current state and in the America's current state with the virus. And under the rules, if you want to not play it, you're not forced to play. You don't lose your job. You just can opt in and out of each opportunity as it comes along. But maybe some, but this is also, that leads to lack of accountability and being kind of a free-for-all. So I don't know. I, I just, I really do think that there needs to be some pretty strict, pretty harsh things here 
Um, and because because Zverev's behavior was that egregious. And I do think, I don't, I want to try to be delicate about this. I do think Sasha Zverev is, in my experience with him and seeing him around tour, I do think he's a more selfish, more self-centered player than the average person on tour. I think this is not, I'm not saying that everyone is as irresponsible as he is, but he did show what I think one of the outer limits of that can be. And so I think that was a really instructive example for people, how they would enforce it, whether there's like in the U S open scenario where there's player hotels that are allowed to do, I would honestly have like no problem doing something closer to what the NBA, I believe is doing, having a real bubble that sort of has essentially guards the door. You know, you can say, Hey, where are you going? You can't leave. If, you know, if you're agreed to be in this U.S. Open bubble, you got to be in the bubble until you or your player is eliminated from the tournament and then you can go. But as so long as you want to be an eligible U.S. Open participant, be allowed on the grounds, be allowed to compete, you got to stay here. That People might say that is too draconian. They might say, hey, you can't do that to people. But I think those can be the sort of stakes. That's I think that's where things like USTA bending the rules a little bit and allowing more entourage to come on site, for example, just frustrates me and makes me nervous because you got to be willing to stand up for this right now. If you're not setting meaningful boundaries, there's no point. I think in general, if all these tournaments are putting in the effort to have all these protocols in place, and uh, then it should go hand in hand that they should have something in place of what happens if these rules are not followed. I think it's yeah. basic. I think I think in general, like that's what code violations are on tour. Like you swear on court, you get fined. You do the like. There, in general, if you're introducing all these new things, you have to think about reviewing your code of conduct and holding the players accountable. And there, are, I think there's got, probably is going to be a lot of gray areas. Not everything is going to be as clear as what Sasha Zverev did. Someone else can tell you, like, well, I just ran to the grocery store because my player needed tape or something. I don't know. I went yeah. to the farm. You know, you never know. But and also bear in mind that if we're talking about several tournaments, and I think I mentioned that in the previous podcast, is that players are going to be on the road for a long time and they're going to be locked in these this kind of it's almost like a pressure cooker, you know, like you can't go yeah. anywhere you need. It's hard. I, I'm not I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not I'm not saying oh, the players are going to have it easy. They're, finally, they're going to get to play sport again. They should be happy. No, it's not going to be easy. If they're playing Washington, then Cincinnati, then US Open, then Madrid, Rome, Paris, and all this time, they're always confined into just the court and their room. When they're not used to doing that, it's hard. So I think players maybe need to be A, smart with their schedules, uh, not overplay during this period for many reasons besides injuries and stuff just from a mental like mental health perspective like are you going to be able to commit to not endangering others during that period because obviously we've seen that when they're on their own time they don't care and they're partying and doing stuff so I, 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 I don't know if fines are the exact right way to go I think some form of punishment a combination of things I know that in um, with the Premier League they were saying they were going to give teams the discretion of not just finding their players but at some point the premier league or like the league itself can deduct points if there's repeat offenses you know if they feel that yeah. the clubs themselves are not following certain rules then they're going to deduct points so th there's a wide range of things they can do the way the wta is approaching it is you know what if you become the reason 
for shutting down a whole tournament, you're you're gonna be a pariah. Like you, if you like, imagine what your peers are gonna think of you if you do something and we're forced to shut down. You know, but why should it reach that point to begin with? Yeah. No, and and I just I think that sort of relying on social ostracization instead of making a rule, it's a weird way to go about things. <laughs> just make the rule, like honestly, make the rule. Don't be like we'll all bully each other when it comes time. Here, a bunch of different suggestions. We got a lot of feedback from listeners when we were talking about the premise for this episode. So thank you to everyone who chimed in on Twitter. And let's start with a few different comments. Betty says, if breaking rules, find the player, even if their support team breaking the rules and withdraw them from the tour for the rest of the year. The only way to be certain the players will bring the necessary people, make the grounds of the tournament fun to hang out and train at so that they only go leave the grounds to sleep. So that's like obviously a, a harsh thing, but I think that it makes sense. I think that's to your point about fines not working. You talk about how much money some of these top players especially have earned. Yeah, I would say ban, just ban them. I'm fine with that. I think the stakes are high enough during a pandemic that's completely reasonable, commensurate, reaction how do you how do you feel about something like that sort of harsh step to suspend players for for breaking the bubble i think yeah i mean listen if if you want to endanger others you you deserve punishment and honestly you don't deserve to be going to work and doing what you love so yes a suspension is not something for me it's not it's obviously on the extreme end of the spectrum but it's also not outrageous to think of another person listener who was calling for more strict fines is friend of the show Cindy Rama Murthy who Reem I know we haven't mentioned this with you we talked about it in our whatsapp and we mentioned it on the codenames game how excited you were to hear about his NCR connection that he's a big fan of the show and of course of Middle East correspondent Reem Abaleo well I've I've been I've been a heroes fan so yeah I was thrilled when I saw that <laughs> Cindy writes he's saying there should definitely be fines but also but also something with more teeth Zverev doesn't care about fines as he's loaded. He may feel a night out at the club, bottle full of bub during Wimby or something is worth a $10,000 fine, but not if it includes losses from ranking points, including if it's someone on his team breaking the rules. And he says, unfortunately, players have shown already that they cannot be trusted. Players in entourage must be held to strict code of COVID conduct. This is a public health emergency. Flouting rules must have severe consequences. Yeah, and so I think we're on the same page. You, me, and the hero. I think that it's, uh, I think that there's not a lot of room for being soft about this. If you want things to get done, you have to be really harsh or, or don't have the tournament, right? If you think that all these things are too draconian, too harsh, take away the spirit of tennis and the tours and having a fun time at the US Open, if Grand Slam is supposed to be happy things, if tennis turns are supposed to be happy, carefree things, then they should not be happening right now. That's just, I think that's, that's where the decision comes to me. Either have a code of conduct that's tough or don't have the tournament, not have it without a code of conduct. I think it's that important to the viability and credibility of a tournament during this time. And I think again, with the fines, uh, they shouldn't be fines that are like when they mispress and they just pay X thousand dollars. It's like probably less than $10,000, if I'm not mistaken. I don't remember what yeah. the fine is for missing press, but it, should, it shouldn't it should be something like that. It should be like a hefty fine. Actually, it should be the same as what, for, for me, for example, I'm currently in the UAE, and the fines that you get slapped with here for not wearing a mask and all these things, they're, very, they're like hefty fines. So everyone is thinking more than once before breaking them. Even during curfew, I remember one time I was trying to make it back home in time 
before curfew. And then there was crazy traffic somewhere because there was like a checkpoint. And I was like, I'm already thinking, oh my God, I'm going to pay so much money for missing curfew by two minutes, you know? Like, so in general, if you, if you make it high enough that even a player who's loaded, um, it has, I think it has to be tied to how much they're making, honestly. I, I know it sounds weird, but I think there is a formula somehow that, that yeah. they can reach to make it where, if you're that rich, it's, but also back to what you're saying, that's how I'm approaching the upcoming period in the sense of, am I willing to go cover a tournament in certain conditions or not? Am I willing to continue working, doing all, like, co- let's say, would I be willing to cover the US Open with an eight hour time zone difference? So I'll be up all night on Zoom all the time, no no access to the coaches and all the people that I usually have access to 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 get a, like a better story, right? To to yeah. to to give a different angle. If I'm not on site, do I even want to cover tennis? Because I feel like I'm I'm a believer in the value of being on site because you're trying to bring the readers something different. If I'm not able to do that, do I still want to go? And that's up to me. That's an indiv- like an individual choice, but if I decide that I will do it, then I will follow all the rules. I will do the Zooms. I will wake up in the middle of the night. I will, you know what I mean? I will find a different way of doing my job and I'll suck it up. But if I'm not willing to suck it up, then it's my choice. And I'll just say I'm staying home and I'm not doing this. Yeah. No, I think that's completely a, a, a fair question for for us. And we can get a little bit to our side of it now. I mean, like we haven't talked about that much on the show, but they they found out, we, we found out during the Eastern press conference officially, I think we'd suspected it but that they would not be letting press on site at the US Open at all. I've heard a little bit later that maybe we'll bend that a little bit possibly for some people, but if you're not having face-to-face interactions with anybody, like what's the point? You just be in the stands, I guess, watching in person. And I will say soaking up some really weird ambiance. I would be actually kind of curious to see what it was like to be at a Grand Slam match with no one there and how that would feel. Mm. So that part maybe has some value, but in terms of interviews or obviously Reem, you are as a reporter, queen of the coaches, you know, everybody and you're so connected and you get all the value and hustle doing that stuff. If you can't do any of that, then what's the, yeah, what's the point of being on site somewhere? So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a weird time. And and I do wonder what it's going to feel like for all of us. I mean, we could be in a situation for us not getting back on site for a long time. Like, you know, until obviously if there's a vaccine, everything goes back to normal. Great. But also I think people are nervous and I've had a couple of different journalists mention this to me in different contexts, like wondering if the access we had, let's say at the US Open last year, if we'll never see that kind of stuff again, if I'll sort of tighten the, the ropes around media access under the cover of COVID mm-hmm. understandably now, but then keep it afterwards, if we'll ever get back to what it was. I don't know. Yeah. I think there's some some reasons to be vigilant about that for sure from a, from a tennis writing perspective. And yeah, it, it's just going to be a, a different time. It's going to be less fun. And again, this gets me to my ambivalence about having tennis or not. Like if these are, if, if all the things we've laid out, you know, guards the doors, you can't go out. If you go to get, you know, ramen at some restaurant in New York, you're defaulted from the tournament and suspended for the rest of the year. If I think those are reasonable consequences, then, which I think I do, then maybe it's not worth it having, having, the US Open or any tournament at all. I, I generally don't know. I, I said during the US Open episode, which we did not want to publish in because of Adria Tour stuff that happened before I was going to publish it. I said then that I sort of, I applaud or I respect the US Open's optimism to think this is possible 
to think that this like moonshot attempt of holding an international tennis tournament in the midst of a raging pandemic is like a tightrope walk in a hurricane. And on some level, good luck, bravo for having the bravery to even attempt this. But at the same time, like it, it's just, it's such a big ask. I, 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 I'm, I'm skeptical and not, while I appreciate their optimism, I don't share it, but that way. Unless they, unless they work really hard on the code of conduct stuff. If they don't do that, I'll, let me tack that on. If they don't do any of that stuff, then I have no faith in it at all. If they really can get everybody to comply, then a little more faith is still not much. For me, it's easy. It's easier for me to say, I think there shouldn't be tennis until things are safer. Because yeah. I don't have all these millions involved. And like, I understand that the US Open or Roland Garros or any of these tournaments, they're, they're trying to, to stay alive. I get, I mean, they're rich. Okay. These are federations have a lot of money, but at the same time, they're losing a lot of money. And obviously the US Open is, is how they make their money. So I understand that so many different things factor into their decision. But if you're asking me from my side, I don't think tennis should resume for many reasons. First of all, it is virtually impossible to keep everyone safe and to control the spread of the virus and all of that because you have all these people coming from all over the world. I mean, and then you're looking at this, a slam that could potentially have no South Americans. Look how many South American yeah, players, no Russians. you know, no, there's so many. Like for me, um, I, I don't understand how you can be fair and say I'm having a slam when half your field isn't going to make it. Again, yeah. Stacey Allister said, I, when I asked her that, that's because I was like, how confident are you that people are going to show up? Are you going to still award points even if like half the field's not there? Um, and she said, I'm confident that there's going to, we're going to have star power and going to have a, a, a strong field. I don't know how she can say that with confidence because no. right now all of these countries are blocking each other. I mean, I just saw that the EU the other day said they're only allowing 15 countries in and the yeah. US is not on that list. None of my countries are on that list. Like Egypt's not on that list. And my current residence, UAE is not on that list. So I, I can't go do my job. But like, um, I think it's too soon. I think that tennis, I don't, I don't think players want to play behind closed doors. I think the whole point of tennis traveling the world and going to these different places is that it goes to different audiences. So why are they hopping around now when no yeah. one's in the stands anyway? They might as well just play like six tournaments in a row in the same place because like, why are they moving around? There is no point. They're not visiting anybody. I've been saying that from the beginning. Like if you're going to have something like a European indoor season on the ATP tour in the fall as traditional, you should consolidate it so that Vienna, Basel, Bercy, Next Gen, London, Antwerp, whatever else I'm missing, Moscow are all in the same place. Like there's no point in traveling between all those different countries to play in front of no fans, various places. There's utterly no point to that. Yeah. So okay. just make one place, have it be a bubble and stick to that bubble. That makes so much more sense to me. And so, and, and that's clear what the US Open is thinking by having Cincinnati in the same location uh, the week before. Although I think you alluded to this Reem. I think, I think you were going, hinting at this, but if not, I'll say it more directly. I'm not sure I would play Cincinnati if I was a serious US Open player especially not if I was a man and had to play best of five at a Grand Slam. To play a Masters event the week before, potentially playing six tough, tough matches yeah. the week before a Slam, 
then I had to play best of five the next week. I yeah, no. I mean the smarter if I schedule. Player, I, would play, I would play Washington and exactly. then take a week off and then play U.S. Open. Exactly the smarter schedule, and even honestly, from a health perspective, if you're traveling from D.C. and going to New York, shouldn't you isolate for a bit because you got on a plane or maybe you got on you a can, train or it's whatever? It's like a four-hour drive. You could well, you could do that in a rented car. Well, they then they should tell easy. players not to fly. They should tell everyone. Yeah, I agree with that. You I should come that. driving. I, that should be a rule. They shouldn't allow anybody to fly from DC to New York. I'm uh, totally fine with that. Or get a private plane and put all the players on it or something. Yeah. For, for me, I'm looking at it from a different, cause we, we had this conversation a couple of days ago about the Premier League and, and I was saying that the first, for the first time during this entire Corona, uh, shit show is that, uh, I got excited about sports for the first time when Liverpool won the league. I've been a mm-hmm. Liverpool fan since I was a kid, and they hadn't won the league in 30 years. Uh, and then when the when the league was suspended, there was only a few games left anyway, and Liverpool had this outrageous lead to begin with, so it was kind of almost settled, but it wasn't really. So anyway, I was thinking, okay, I, I'm invested in this just these couple of games, and then yay, I'm happy Liverpool won, but there was a point to all of this. It's a league, there are positions... Uh, you're yeah. looking at the three teams that are getting relegated. You're looking at the top teams that are going to make it to the Champions League. Like, there's a point to finishing these seven to eight games, okay? Or whatever, how many games there were. Whereas with tennis, usually you look at the whole season, it's a 52-week ranking, and then there's the top eight at the end of the year. Now that we've lost a huge chunk of the season, and suddenly we're squeezing in three Master Series and two Slams in like a seven or eight-week period, which is nuts. Um Yeah. What is the point? Tell me what is the point? When, first of all, if you're unfreezing the rankings, but not everyone will get a playing opportunity because the players ranked outside the top 120, basically, cannot play unless the ITF start again and the challengers start again and stuff like that. So you're unfreezing rankings, but not everybody can play. Already, that is a problem. Then probably some people aren't going to be able to travel because of travel restrictions. That's another problem. Suddenly, you have someone winning a slam and there's an asterisk next to their name because not everybody was there. And then suddenly, a couple of months later, you're looking at a top eight for London, which apparently the tour is still looking at holding the ATP finals. What kind of top eight am I looking at when they've only played four tournaments or six tournaments or something? That for me, I, I find, I personally find it pointless. So it's going to be purely about players trying to make some money, which I understand. I'm not belittling that, but it's, it's, it's not the tour. It's not tennis. No, it's not. It's not tennis as we knew it. I sort of enjoy your semi pun there of thinking it's pointless to have points. <laughs> if it, if the tour, <laughs> the race to London stopped now, let's say, which would be crazy. I hadn't realized this. And I, it's obviously because the tour feels like a long time ago. Gail Monfils is third in the race. Good for him. Andre Rublev is fifth. Christian Guerin is sixth. So I think yeah. I think Ons is eleven or twelve or something. Yeah. So you know. <laughs> so Ons is in Zhuhai. <laughs> so that's and that was her goal for the year. So if if it ends, she made it. So I like I loved her saying that Zhuhai was a goal for the year. I was really happy to hear that. Yeah, uh, that's too. a separate thing. Who knows if Zhuhai should or will happen? And she said it before home. she made quarters in Australia. That's why I felt that was yeah. impressive because it was like a a big goal before she even did that. Yeah, she's number eleven yeah. in the race. Yeah, I I just. I don't know. I mean, like, I understand wanting to have tennis, but like the barriers, I just don't know if it's worth it. You know, I just, again, and I'm somebody who is absolutely admittedly erring on the overcautious side of thing, right? Like I would not Mm. feel comfortable going to an open air patio restaurant right now. And like, even if the next table was a meter or two meters, whatever away, 
I would not feel like I could relax and have a good time there. Like I still am fully in sort of siege mentality with this pandemic, which is still going on, especially certainly in the US. It's, we're having our highest numbers ever right now because we are that stupid and that blase about things. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I I don't know. I just, I, I, I feel like if people play different episodes, I've had different enthusiasm at different things at different points. It kind of depends on my mood each day, honestly. Yeah. But just like seeing, see, again, going back to Zverev, I think that was a really, really disheartening moment to see like, wow, we are not all in it together. We do not all have each other's back. We cannot trust each other. It's, he's just so out of touch because I think yeah. that he's looking at it from, oh, hey, look, everyone in the south of France is, is fine and we're partying and that. But also, which was, again, my point with the Adriats were how jarring it was for people who are really struggling. Like, I, I can now fly to Egypt starting today which is something I have been waiting to do since last Feb. However, yeah. uh, the numbers in Egypt are insane. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm kind of alarmed by the amount of bad news that keeps coming out of Egypt every day. I'm getting calls with people mm. losing me- members of their family from COVID yeah. every day. Like it's, it's that close. And, and I, and I'm like, I want to go, but I don't know if I want to go to see my parents, but at the same time, I, I don't want to endanger my parents because right. it's 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 basically covid everywhere there right now so there there are a lot of people struggling with this and then you go and see someone who six days ago was exposed to so many people who tested positive and then he's just partying it's just completely out of touch completely out of touch with reality and irresponsible in a way where uh, sasha's not a teenager anymore he's 23 years old he's an adult yeah, so I I also don't understand how he's still acting like he's a teenager. Like I remember when he was very young and he had a wild card at a tournament, and I once went, the ATP wouldn't come with me to go interview him. They were like, "You can go, you're alone, we're busy or something." So I went, and he blew me off and was very rude, and 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 I'm like, "But you kind of have to do press if I requested you." But he was just really rude and left. And at the time, I was like, "You know what? He doesn't know better. You know, the ATP should have been there. They should have told him. Maybe he doesn't know better." This is yeah. now a 23-year-old who's been in the top five or top ten for God knows how long as well, has won big titles, and this is how he's acting. It's like no responsibility whatsoever. Yeah. No, I got to say, I was very heartened, especially after all of the nonsense around Adria Tour and around all the other stuff that Djokovic has been at the center of during this core period. I was very heartened at how Zverev's fans were reacting to the video last week. They were, or sorry, just, it feels like so long ago. It was three days ago uh, as of recording this. Like they were really, really disgusted by it, I think. And they were not defending it. They were not trying to, to origami it into something, you know, pretty. They were saying, look at this. It shows that he's completely selfish and out of touch and spoiled and insensitive. And whatever other insult you want to fairly throw at him for this, it's all of that. And so I really respected the Zvera fans, honestly, for being rational, which is something you don't see all the time in tennis fandom. Yeah. So, so I just think that a separate, how about this question? If they could, or even if they can't, should the US Open and or other ATP events coming up be able to ban Zverev now? Should, should there already be able to be consequences for this, for this uh, breach of public health that he has committed? 
I think that the only way they could do that is if, like the way, if I'm looking at other examples, when like that Aston Villa player, for example, was, was fined by his club. He was fined by his club because he broke a government rule. Whereas for some reason, Sasha's allowed to do what he did, which I don't know. I don't know when he was entering France. Did he sign something saying, I will self-isolate for two yeah, weeks or know. not? You know what I mean? Like some countries do that. I don't know if that's the case with him. So I think if it's not legal, it's not illegal uh, on paper, at least it's not illegal, then I, I, don't, I don't think they should or they could do that. And again, it's not how tennis operates. I think in another sport, maybe that would work. But in tennis, that's not how tennis operates. They do, they yeah. don't, they don't hold people accountable for doing stuff that happened away from their tournaments. Sometimes if it's off site, it's a struggle, right? Yeah. So. No, that, that's, that's why I mentioned Polanski earlier, because I think it is a wider issue. Those are just things that happened within the last week. I was like, if there's any sort of normal employer, there'd be major consequences for this. For both of these things, for both Zverev and Polanski. But the only thing tennis really seems to have its act together on in terms of consequences is, I guess, positive doping tests. Mm-hmm. That's like the only thing where tennis ever kind of has like rules that it seems to, as far as we, surface level can tell, follow. Right. Mm-hmm. But other than that, mm-hmm. like everything is just, everything just kind of slides and everything is kind of ambiguous. Everything takes way too long to adjudicate. Like when, when Kyrios does something in Cincinnati last year and they don't come up with a, a, a ruling until what like it was october or something it took way too long yeah i think because they wanted to make sure he could play labor cup right i think that was right exactly that happened, right? that's, that's so, so embarrassing like tennis <laughs> is so embarrassing in so many ways i know that was ridiculous aye, aye, aye. i mean look at some of the reaction to as my as much as there's a lot of people who who agreed with Kyrgios, I saw a lot of comments where it was like, uh, why are you talking? Like, what, what does the, this has nothing to do with you? Oh, Boris Becker said that, yeah. You should, uh, you should have called him yourself. And I'm like, but this is how people are held accountable. If he, co- like, it's, it, it's different. Kyrgios is doing this on purpose. He is, for whatever, even if he has his other reasons for doing it, I don't care. At the end of the day, this is what holding someone accountable for his actions looks like. This is what it looks like. And yeah. this is how it should be. And I don't understand why tennis finds it. They shy away from this. And I don't understand why. No, completely. I mean, it's it's like a, it's a it's a omerta or a, more less less pretentiously. It's a bro code of, you know, players not speaking out against each other. And you sort of alluded to it. But Boris Becker was, I think, called Kyrgios a rat for sort of speaking out against one of his peers in Zverev, who Becker and Zverev are relatively... I have to say he was completely incoherent anyway, and I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, not gonna waste my time on any of the stuff Boris Becker said, to be honest, because that was not, that was not coherent, and he tagged Farfetch, which, like, was he shopping? Is he trying to get a sponsorship from them? I do not understand. It's, it's just not okay, and honestly, none of it made any sense. None of it made any sense. My takeaway from all of that was that yay, we have a new um, a new type of food that we can use that Nick has used to I know. to refer to someone. I love that. Now we have peanut, potato, and donut. And I think donut is my favorite, even though peanut was you, so I kind of also like peanut. But I think donut was was my favorite. Yeah, 
I was I was legitimately tweeting and wondering: Is there any food that wouldn't sound like an insult if Nick Kyrgios tried to use it as an insult? I know he I uses he make... it very well. Yeah, he, he it's a skill. Yeah, it really is. The the other thing I would just say on that is like as much as people are like, "Wow, Kyrgios!" and it, when when I posted the video of Zverev in the club, there were all immediately like fifty people like tagging Nick, like "Can't wait for you to respond, Nick Kyrgios." Nick Kyrgios, can't wait here to see it. Said about this, Nick Kyrgios, come get your dude or something like that. Like. Folks, there are a hundred other players on the ATP tour level. Other people could be speaking out. And like, to me, like that silence is louder than whatever Nick Kyrgios says as he's driving. Like Nick Kyrgios, yes, hit a lot of good points. And I think people, a lot of people were like, wow, Nick Kyrgios voice of reason. But this is, this is my reaction to when he did his NCR interview uh, last year, which got all the attention. Gosh, like, like uh, roughly 14 months ago now. Mm. Like what Kyrgios said almost all of it wasn't things that people aren't saying already in private and thinking in private. The shock wasn't that he said any particular thing that we didn't think he thought. It was that he had the balls, honestly, to say them out loud or the recklessness, if you want to call that, to say it out loud. Like his honesty was so untethered that it made you realize just how tied up and held back everyone else is. That's it's it's also not just them. I mean, we've tours, seen actually. we've seen how, for example, Naomi has been quite outspoken and she's been calling yeah. out people and stuff. And then eventually she said, OK, guys, I'm going to stop. This is going to be a happy place now. And, and sometimes she would reply to people and then suddenly the tweet would disappear, whether that's her or her agent. At the end of the day, the the tennis community and the people who control them or the people who work with them, they they want them to just stay like silent somehow in certain ways yeah. and uh, and there are a few exceptions obviously Nick is, is I think, the exception and I, I, and I just I just think tennis is a worse place for it like one of the one of the moments in the curious interview and it happened on social media also before that that stood out to me most from NCR last year was when he was talking about Kerber you know and Kerber mm-hmm. after having the, calling Bianca Andrescu yeah. a drama queen on court in Miami then the next day, her account has some completely nonsense tweet about how nice it is playing against her when a great player she is. Like, the the disingenuity is off the charts. And I just think tennis would be a better place for being more uh, emotionally honest. And, you know, and there's all these rules. I mean, this is not totally related, but I wanted to read this one other tweet that we got that I liked a lot from Claire. Claire L, who said players are fined for swearing, penalized for hitting a ball out of bounds, and dock points for a hat falling off, potentially nothing for reckless endangerment of lives. So wrong. So, I mean, like, I feel like tennis, like, you know, does such a focused job on making sure that people, yeah, don't hit a ball out of the stadium or into the crowd, which I'm, I, I'm not saying I'm against that rule, but then let's other bigger things slide. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I, to that end, I, I sort of do wish there were ways to get both tours more outspoken. I've loved seeing Naomi outspoken during this. I've loved seeing Sloane Stevens. I want to keep mentioning mm-hmm. her because I think she's also had a really interesting core time, uh, both on the Black Lives Matter side and also just on being outspoken mm-hmm. and coming to collect uh, Tara Moore at one time. Like, I just think that, I think she's had a really strong uh, period as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, also being a player council person working behind the scenes as well from what I gather. Yeah, I, I just I just want more of that. And I just I just I if if Zverev doing the indisputably shitty thing he did is not enough to wake them up, then like what is? 
you know, I, and, I th- and I think you're right. I, th- I think you're right. It has to be in public. The reckoning has to be public. Of course it has to be public. What good does it do if you're just send- sending a message, dude, how dare you? If you're yeah. his friend, fine. If you're his friend, then you'd be like trying to right. actually influence his behavior and be like, can you stay put, please, and get tested right. again? But like, that's not what Nick is doing. That's not the purpose of what Nick is doing at all. Um, no. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see if any of Zverev's sponsors would choose to drop him because of this. Because again, it is endangering people's lives. It is extremely yeah. reckless. But, but he probably won't. He will, no one will drop him, but it's, it's worth, it's actually worth dropping him. This, if someone this... wants to make a statement about public health, then, I mean, why is he keeping his sponsors when he's doing this kind of stuff? This is a thing that also got brought up in, in the context of Djokovic months ago, you know, in terms of the uh, his, his Instagram lives with the pseudoscience nonsense and spreading that. When, when I had an interview on NCR with uh, Katrina, who's a longtime Novak superfan, who was saying that she wished that like Lacoste or somebody would drop him to send a message say like, hey, there are consequences for this. This is actual and real and there should be tangible effects to this. And this goes to the kind of the whole point of this whole episode, which is there's just no accountability in tennis. You just don't see that. Again, except for these very distinct, very outlier situations with the positive tests. Like when Maria Sharapova tested positive for Meldonium in 2016, like bunches of sponsors were, were either pausing or dropping within 24 hours, right? Yeah. So why can't there be other standards? People do more things wrong in this sport than just, yeah, you know, taking a drug after it's been added to a banned list. Yeah. Like it, it, it just, it just, uh, yeah, I, I, I just find that we've known about this in tennis. We've known that people get away with, you know, murder is the expression. Obviously not many murders that we know of happening on tour, thankfully, mm-hmm. literal murders, but the, the leashes are so long that they're meaningless. And this is a time right now in, in the pandemic where you need to have people under control. You really do. And I will, again, reiterate a point I made previously that I don't want to totally miss this, but almost all the shitty behavior we're talking about has been men. The women, as far as we know, I mean, Donna Vekic and a few other WTA players were at Adria Tour. But. Yeah, and she, and Donna went to the concert with Olga. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. I think Anna Konya was there as well and stuff. But again, yeah. it was, for me, it's what's after that is what's even more important, you know? And as far as we can tell, no. like, I hope that they all stay, right. or we- stayed isolated, which is kind of what Marin Cilic also said he would do. And, like, also these players, like, they should know they're famous. People are going to film them and put them online. Like... <laughs> Honestly, yeah, and, and, and it wasn't even like Zverev was like like a gotcha moment. He was looking into the camera of this of this fashion designer German guy, Philip Plein. I don't know how to pronounce it, Philippe Plein, something like that. Uh, and sort of mouthing along the words to the song. And very lucky, the camera only cut to him after certain words of the song. Add that in there. It could have been a much worse video for Zverev. But um, you know, yikes! Like it's to, to the to the women's part. The one other thing I wanted to say about the women's event. So I watched a little bit. I've not been watching that much tennis. I've not honestly had a lot of appetite for tennis the last few weeks, even the stuff that's going on now, UTS, Adria, whatever. But I watched a little bit of the Charleston event, which happened. Mm-hmm. And I think they did a real, from what I could tell, from everything I was hearing on the grounds, I think they did a very good job of being thorough, having lots of testing before and during of players, of keeping distance, having people wearing masks, having stands be empty. Very, very sparse event. But at the same time, so that, that part's 
all great. But at the same time, like it left me feeling kind of empty. I don't know. It wasn't like, it didn't feel like watching tennis. I was watching, I, I tuned in to watch the Keys Kennan match, which was like two top 10. I think he's not 10 right now, maybe top 10 ish, at least players. Uh, and so it was like a good quality match and went mm-hmm. to a final set breaker and the tennis itself was good. But like very first point of the match, Madison Keys clocked this like amazing reflex forehand winner and like no one reacted. Mm. And it just like, yeah. so I don't know if, 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 if just like the UTS canned artificial applause is enough to fix that. Um, and the commentators honestly probably should have been a little bit more emotive when that happened than they were. But I was just mm. like, I, you know, what's the tennis is not about playing in a vacuum. It's about doing things in the moment and, having those sort of things acknowledged. I don't know. It, it, I don't know. It, it, at some point, because as far as we know, there's not been any spreading of the, of the disease from the Charleston event, but does that make it a success? I, I, you know, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I'm, I just feel like the ceiling for tennis right now is really low. You know, even the best possible event is still not that great. I understand that they're holding a lot of these events for charity reasons. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I understand that. But also, a lot of these people are rich. They can just donate or like That's urge the thing others with Novak to donate. Especially. If Novak's like, we're having a tour for fundraising, Novak, you, you have so much money. Just give money, which he has been giving money also. I also understand that for him, it was about solidarity among the Balkans because it's a region that's had a lot of yeah, for sure. differences for a long time. I understand that. It, it's actually a lovely idea if it was at a different right. time. For me, I would, I would love that thing in terms of the purpose of it and everything. It's, it's great if it was uh, done when there is no pandemic. It would have been great. When there's no pandemic, if like Novak wants to make Adria Tor like his labor cup, and have it be his sort of like legacy project, I think that'd be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, he was like, going to Bosnia and he that. was going to play with uh, Damir yeah. Jamur there, which is great. Like, uh, I, I get that. Like, I, that's not lost on me in terms of that, the solidarity part and all of that. The, the, the charity element, I mean, Rafa raised a lot of money with so many others, I think including Novak as well. He donated to, with Rafa's campaign and in Pau Gasol was in it and stuff. And, just, and that was all virtual, right? Like they, they, he was, they all just put videos up and urged each other to, to donate. And, and in the end, like people put money. So I'm not like tennis is not the only way to raise money right now. Yeah. I mean, the whole umbrella of the, it's great that there's a charity element to all of these events, but also if it's not going to be safe, just donate online and urge people to donate online. And it's the same thing. Find other things to do. Like, honestly, I was as much as I think the execution of it was pretty dodgy at times. The idea of the Madrid virtual tournament Mm. was great. Like I love the idea of that. And the Mario tennis event that happened a couple weeks later, there was an IMG event, which was also glitchy. Obviously it was much cleaner and better, but it was still glitchy. Like there was a whole game that couldn't be played because their presentation was better than the, than the Madrid one. Um, but like, do things like, honestly, like in for NCR, like we did like, uh, I'm hoping to have you on soon, like the code name saying. Oh my like, God. I love time... that so much. That was amazing. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, we are hoping to have, that was on, that's on our Patreon. Yeah. So go check that if you haven't seen it. It's, it. We had a lot of fun with it and we're hoping to get Reem on a future episode very soon with an exciting partner. I know. I got so, it. We're going to kill it. <laughs> I totally expect you two to like be practicing, by the way. I think I can see you guys like, you being like, you got to get on now. We're going to do some like practice games, practice sets, whatever. 
do it. I definitely want to do that because I do not have faith in my partner. (laughs) (laughs) I will send you the word bank so you can practice. You can do some drilling. Um, I I definitely want to test her because, I mean, if it's me and Courtney teaming up together or me and you, I mean, we would kill this. But uh, I I don't have that much faith in my partner at the moment. (laughs) But we will work on it. We'll work on it. So yeah, so that's something that was been really fun to do. Um, and again, I do think like in confinement, in these challenges, a lot, so much creativity can come from it. Like I've, I've had a lot of different projects I've been doing that have been really fun and rewarding and very different. And then I've been, you know, I, I, I taught myself how to play an instrument in two months. Yes, your ukulele. Played, I know. <laughs> I've literally never played the string instrument in my life. <laughs> it's been fantastic. And, yeah. I, and like, as much as like, so I'm having fun doing that. I've done like a lot of like Zoom trivia things. I've found this sort of like new circle of people. I'm doing like twice a week Zoom trivia, which has been so much, it was so nerdy and so much fun. I still want to do one, by the way, with NCR listeners. I'll set up on the Patreon. I want to do like host a game show thing with that. We'll still do that at some point. But like, I'm doing that and enjoying that and not dwelling on, which we have not mentioned this whole show. This was supposed to be day three Wimbledon. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like that's what we were supposed to do. But I think... It's just not that time. For me, that's my thought. It's like, that's not with 2020. That's not how it shook out, right? Mm, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm, I think Wimbledon, actually, I will sh- shout out to. They're, I think they've done a great job, as expected. Their content team is unbelievable, Wimbledon. Yeah. They do such good work. So I think their content for this quarantine, and they're the first slam that officially just canceled, canceled. Yeah. Like, I think they're doing a wonderful job. A lot, they're putting some really cool matches to put up there. They had, like... Steffi Graf and Laurie McNeil from 94, like Venus's mm-hmm. first match on at Wimbledon from 97. Yeah. Like those are, it's such deep cut matches. That I thought, I think it's been really cool. So yeah. shout out to Wimbledon. They've done a lot of cool stuff, but at the same time, like I, as much as we are two people who I think really do in so many ways, eat, sleep and breathe tennis and have for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like I'm finding other oxygen right now. And that's, and that's what I kind of have to do. And I think that's been perfectly fulfilling. So rather than seeing the sport that's sort of like strangled and choked till it turns blue potentially why not just sort of let it let it exhale a bit and let it rebuild let let there be a vaccine and things happen yeah i know biz- the business if that, that that side i understand those pressures but at the same time like i i yeah i don't know i think uh this is a time where in general it's it shouldn't be hard to gain perspective it's not hard because you're yeah. you're sitting alone you're reflecting a lot you're not doing much and it's and the big picture is actually not difficult to see the big picture is let's all try and do the right thing so that we can move not even past this i don't even know if we can move past it but just go through it with the least possible damage yeah uh, and not contribute to the damage uh, and if we all thought that way, then then probably things will get better. But uh, I don't know how that simple idea is lost on people. I don't get it. Uh, and it's not like for I'm like I don't say this and uh, from a position where oh my job is great and it's secure. I have no job. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I'm I I know that everyone else is affected in one way or another, and. And I'm I'm not gonna go rush and force a situation and be like, yes, I want there to be tennis so that I can have a job again. No, I either find yeah. something else to do or just stay put. You know, like ah. Uh, anyway, 
I mean, I think no, I completely, I completely agree with that. And I wanted to use that great segue to recommend people uh, support Free Mabuleo and CR's <laughs> Middle East correspondent on Patreon. Seriously. <laughs> On that this, was not on, the point of that, but thank no, you. No, I know, but I, I, I had a note to do it anyway. I wanted to do it. You've been such a massive part of NCR during the stoppage. It's been amazing having you. So please, folks, if you've enjoyed Marine, which I know you have, to get lots of great feedback on her, as always, um, her her Patreon is Reem, uh, sorry, is patreon.com slash Uh And you can throw some much-deserved coin her way because she's been fantastic with us and with other places and writing good stuff and doing good reporting all these things. Uh, so yes, show Reem some love, please folks. And we also, NCR and myself being largely jobless and Patreon now being my main source of income by a lot, uh, which is a situation I did not expect to be in when I started the Patreon in January. But uh, that's been wonderful. We've had a lot of support from folks. We just recently cracked the thousand dollar barrier. Yes, congrats. That, so that was, was awesome. that was a, That was a very cool milestone to hit. I think we have a little bit over 200 backers at different levels and we'd love to have you join too uh to help again while we're here <laughs> otherwise jobless patreon.com slash no challenges remaining and as we said as reem was i showed i've showed reem all the episodes of the code names even ones that aren't out yet um and you love them that's it so i think i think the stuff that like support hopefully people can support us because they like the show and want to support us but also i do genuinely think that like the patreon content has been pretty great i think it's been great. It's been great. I, I was listening to the podcast you did with Courtney that was like two hours long or two plus or something, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. I hadn't listened to that. And then just a, a few days ago, uh, I, I listened to it before I went to bed and I was like, honestly, this is really good content. This is like, <laughs> because a lot of the stuff you were saying, I was feeling it and I'm feeling the same thing. And I'm like, this is great. Like you can relate to so much of what you guys are saying. And, and the code name stuff is, I binged all three episodes back to back and I loved it so much. I will say it's not up yet. I think I'm going to put it up probably Thursday or Friday, the third episode, but the third set is a mess. So look forward to that. Which was my favorite. I love that so much. I was was screaming at my screen the whole time because I was like, I know, I know. (laughs) Like, what are you guys doing? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's great. Keep it up. Thank you again for for being on here. Uh, Stay safe. Stay healthy and everything and hope all is well with you. And I'm sure we'll talk to you again on the show very soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for your support of NCR. And we have a bunch of thank yous to give. This is our first episode of the month. And so always in our first episode of the month, we have a lot more thanks to give. Our gratitude is constant throughout all calendar days, I will say. But as a tradition, first day of the month, we have a lot more thanks to do. Firstly, as every episode, we want to give thanks to our new Patreon backers who have joined on to patreon.com slash no challenges remaining since we last did an episode bunch of them this time uh six glenn price emily modak joseph har leo williams casey mckenzie and mark shooter and now because it's the first of the month we want to give thanks to everybody who is at the on tour level of our backers you get thanked at the beginning of each month and they are leo williams russell baker jb wogan Carol Allen, Jillian Dobson, Helene DeVitt, Andrew, the Body Serve Podcast. And congratulations, by the way, Body Serve Podcast, for your 200th episode this week. Awesome stuff. Here's the next 200. Also, Andrew Eccles, Stephanie Chow, Greer Millard, Brett Halsey, Ava Marshalkova, John Fisher, Erica Jane Glamgoles, Rumdwalv Wong, Brian Rolick, 
Kate S., Jeremy Blackstock, Dermot Harkin, and Lori Porter. Thank you to those fine folks. And then also to our Slam Champ backers who we thank every episode. Susanna W., Joseph Har, a new Slam Champ backer. Thank you, Joseph. Mary Carrillo, Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Betty and Chuang Nguyen, and to our GOAT backer, J.O.D. So thank you to all of you very much once more. And again, replug for Reem's Patreon as well. If you're enjoying her guest spots, she's been very frequent filling out on the podcast. As you know, Courtney uh, often does not feel comfortable on talking about shows where we're sort of talking about tour issues and critiquing you know, WTA policies on things like we are on this episode. So Reem has been an incredibly game and wonderful stand-in for, for Courtney. And so eternally grateful Reem. Again, she is at patreon.com slash Reem We'll have a link to her Patreon in the description of the show also. And I think that's it. Send us questions, comments, anything to nochallengesremaining at gmail.com for future episodes or just to give your feedback anytime you want. We have the Codenames games also on Patreon that are coming out. The final set of those is coming out. The final set of the first round of them we did uh, with Blair Henley and Nick McCarville is coming out later on Friday, the day we're publishing this episode, Friday, July 3rd. We are also planning on doing them with more other people. If there's other people you'd like to see on, uh, we'd love to hear from them. And on the email, actually, I'm kind of rambling here, but on the email, if you're interested, again, in doing the sort of tennis trivia game show thing idea I teased, raise your hand in an email or on a Patreon comment or something like that, and we'll flag it and get you in the mix. And hopefully we can find a time that works for people in, across our viewership to do a, a coordinated time to do sort of a live game show experience or a couple different times to suit different time zones, maybe, depending on where people land on the globe and in their schedules in life. And I think that's it. I think I've been talking enough here. Thank you very much, guys. Stay safe once again, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Oh. Precious getting bomb, precious getting